Essentially, from 1 Samuel 21 to the end of the book, that's how we find David. We find him essentially living as a desperate man, uh, literally a fugitive, facing difficulty after difficulty. Tonight is 1 Samuel 21, beginning in verse 1, we're going to go through verse 9. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling, said to him, why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered, David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is the holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women, and David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it's an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. And David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. So when I was in uh, seventh grade, uh, I got to take a very memorable trip with my parents and grandparents. Uh, my dad wanted to take my grandparents out west before they got too old. So I got to go to Yellowstone when I was in seventh grade and it was amazing. And uh, as a seventh grader, I had a little junky camera. And the, the thing that most impressed me about Yellowstone was the Upper Falls, this, this massive waterfall. Essentially, if you Google Yellowstone, the Upper Falls picture is probably gonna come up. And I was just so captivated by this massive waterfall. I mean, I still can see it in my mind's eye that uh, I took my old junky camera and essentially I took uh, what, what would be maybe a primitive panora panorama. And I just took a picture here and then moved the camera around and I wanted a, a panoramic picture of this just incredible waterfall. So when I got back home, I sent the pictures off to be developed and I received them. They turned out okay. So I took my X-Acto razor blade and I cut those pictures up and I essentially did primitive Photoshop. And I, I taped it together and I had a panoramic picture of the upper falls and it was awesome. I had it on my wall for years. But if you just took one of those pictures on the ends and looked at it, it would really just look like a bunch of trees. It would, it would be very far from spectacular. And that's kind of what we have here in this text. You, you have essentially a snapshot of David's life. Uh, and the snapshot is quite rough. And, and it's going to be so for the next several chapters uh, in David's experience. But the panorama is God is making David king. And the way that God is making David king, the way that God is going to bring David to the throne is through a path of pain. 
And in that path that God leads David on, keep in mind, David himself writes that he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. God leads us on these paths for his purposes and according to his plan. It puts David in a circumstance of desperation. David, in fact, after this text, is so desperate, he goes to the Philistines, his greatest memory, enemies for help. And in verses 10 to the end of the chapter, he's going to pretend like he's insane to escape the Philistines. So Lord willing, that'll be next week. But this act that we see here in the text that, that we read is, is an act of desperation. He goes, to the, he goes to the place where God is worshipped. And he essentially lies to the priest. And then he eats the holy bread. And then he takes a sword. He is in a desperate circumstance. Now think about where David's at in his life. He has fled from his work. David was a very accomplished military man at this point. That essentially whatever David put his hand to, God blessed and God favored. David was a man characterized by incredible worldly success. He's left it all behind. He had to run from that. And, and David's best friend, Jonathan, he's fled from. David's wife and home, he's fled from. And the man who's hunting him is none other than the king. A man of great resource and resolve to kill David. He is living on the razor's edge. And you know where it's going to take him. I think it's very fascinating that the very first place David goes here when he's on the run, when he finds out for sure Saul is out to kill me, is he goes to the place where God is worshipped. He goes essentially to the high priest's family and, and goes to them for help. But after that, he's going to go to the Philistines. Then he's going to go to a cave, which is going to produce the two darkest psalms in all the Psalter, or at least of David's psalms. Then he's going to go to the wilderness. Then he's going to go to ruins. Then he's going to go to the hill country. Then he's going to go back to the Philistines. I mean, he is in a desperate situation. And look what happens. Look what we see. He comes to Ahimelech, the priest, at Nob. And notice Ahimelech's response. He came to meet David trembling. This is unusual. Keep in mind, David is, David is, David's reputation is that of the Lord is with him. He's killed his tens of thousands. He's had military success wherever he's gone. He's essentially like a general in Saul's army, responsible for over a thousand soldiers. And now he's coming alone to the priest. And, and the, the, the priest essentially knows who he's dealing with. And he's trembling. He's fearful because this is quite unusual for David to be alone. Because David is usually surrounded by at least a thousand soldiers. But he comes here alone. And, and that's why the priest asks, you know, why are you alone in verse 1? Why is no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you about which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Because this is one of the immediate questions. Where are the young men? Where are the warriors at? I mean, David is not a guy who typically travels alone. He's got quite a company of men that respect him and men that he leads. And, and so what does he do? He lies. This is a deception. There's no two ways about it. This is one of the things the scripture records for us. Even of men and women who were otherwise very faithful, it records their wrongdoings quite, quite often, particularly in the case of David. Now keep in mind, what you've got with David in your Bible is you've got an Old Testament figure and character that the Bible gives more attention to than anyone else in the Old Testament. I mean, 
David is written about more in the Old Testament than any other person. So you know a good bit about David's life comparatively. More than, way more about David than Abraham. More about David than Moses. And we see here the scripture does not try to cover up his deceptions. It's one of the things that makes the Bible different than Greek mythology. If you read Greek mythology, which I would commend some of it to you, there's nothing bad about Achilles who is swift of foot. He's like a superhero. David's a real man. David's a real man. And then look what we have in verse 3. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered, David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. Now at that point, one thing you need to understand from the Old Testament, this is bread that was used in the worship of God and it was restricted only for the priests of God. So essentially, one of, the, one of the conundrums of this text, and by the way, if you study 1 Samuel, it's a book full of conundrums. And this is the one in the text here. Why does the priest authorize David to eat of that which only the priest could eat? We'll talk about that in just a minute. And then he says, if the young men have kept themselves from women, then David essentially tells more lies. There's no young men with him. He's alone and he's on the run. Verse 6, so the priest gave him the holy bread. For there was no bread there but the bread of the presence which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day that it's taken away. Essentially what you have from David here are several, several deceptions. It's all right. We love kids around here. Praise God for them. It's all good. We have, we have several examples of David deceiving the priest. What can we learn from that? I think one of the things we can learn is not to allow desperation to pressure you into depravity. We've got to prepare ourselves now and prepare our souls now not to allow desperation to lead us into depravity because it so easily can. And I speak as one who's never really faced real desperation. But I can see from David's example how a man like David, a man after God's own heart, deceit, lies to the priest and the high priest's family numerous times because of the pressure and desperation he's under. That's his context and that's what he's dealing with. I was reminded today in reading and thinking about this of the poem by Rudyard Kipling. Here's how it begins. It's a poem if and it's essentially about being a man. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. I mean, who can do that? It's quite difficult. I mean, think about it when you face anxiety or you face uncertainty or you face difficulties in life. I mean, just imagine, one thing I imagine today, what if you were facing a famine? Knowing myself well enough, I'm assuming, do you know what a famine would turn me into? Probably a savage rather than a sanctified man. We've got to not allow desperation to, to, to push us into or tempt us into depravity. We can't let a situation turn us into a savage because we are saints. And we've got to determine now before the desperation comes to be faithful. We don't know what the future holds. But as Christians, we do know that we will face tribulation in life. It's simply part of what it means to live faithful and holy in a wicked world. It's to face tribulation and trial. And how are we going to respond to that? Well, let me read a little bit more of Kipling's poem. Because I, I think it just describes the reality of life because he can see it as well as we can. He goes on to say, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same, if you can 
bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools. Or watch the things you gave your life to, broken, and stoop and build them up with worn out tools. If you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss. And he talks about that's how you will be a man. One of the other things we learn from this text and really from later in chapter 22, and I wrestled with, do we do this text in 22 at the same time? And I, I decided not to because it's just not in the way the Bible's written. One of the things this is foreshadowing is that there are consequences to sins. Something that the whole Bible teaches us and that all of us by experience know. There are consequences for sins. Go over to chapter 22 and let me show you the consequences for David's deception here. Because remember, there's this guy Doeg, the Edomite, essentially hiding in the shadows, detained by the Lord there. Look at verse 17 of the next chapter. Essentially, Saul finds out that David had met with Ahimelech. And keep in mind, the priest didn't know. The priest is led to believe that David's on a mission for the king. Maybe David was trying to protect him. We just don't know. Look at verse 17. The king said to the guard who stood about him. Now keep in mind, this at the time is the primary place where God is worshipped. This is where God's people gather corporately for worship. And then here's, here's Saul the king. The king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand is also with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abathar told David what, that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. That's something to live with. The priests were wiped out. Why? Doeg, yes. David's deception, yes. I've occasioned their death. One of the things I think this text primarily teaches us too is to also remember the good provision of God to remember the good provision of God. And I think probably more than anything else, in David's desperation, that, that's what you see here. You see God caring for David. You see God providing for him. This, I believe, is why the priest gives David the bread. It's mercy. It's provision. It's kindness. God provides him his, his, his physical need food, and then God works to protect him by providing him with this sword. Oftentimes we can feel like God casts us off, can't we? Our circumstances can make us think, where is God in this? Why is God not for me? Why has God done this to me? Why has God cast me off? It's what the psalm we read this morning says. Psalm 74, how long, O Lord? I mean, are you going to forget us forever? It's how the psalmist felt. We can feel that way oftentimes. But friends, let me ask you this, and let me just put this point of perspective in your mind. Are you still provided food? Most of us would answer yes. 
I mean, have you gone hungry for an extended amount of time? Have you ever faced a real famine like I alluded to early, earlier? Later in Psalm 37, 25, David says, I have been young and I have been old, but I have never seen the righteous forsaken or begging bread. David is in dire straits, utterly desperate, and God is caring for him. God is still providing him with what he needs. This is what Jesus takes from this account. Actually, there's two things. If you go to Matthew 12, it'd be worth looking at this because Jesus refers to this. Matthew 12. And we know Jesus does not get the main point of the text wrong. Matthew 12, beginning in verse 1. This is in the context of one of the the many controversies with the Pharisees. And this controversy has to do with an activity they're engaged in on the Sabbath. And Jesus alludes to this verse that we just read tonight. Matthew 12, beginning in verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. Which, by the way, incidentally and technically, is not against the law of God. The Pharisees are here referring to their tradition, not really the word of God. That's a different matter, verse 2. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, have you, now this is Jesus' reply. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple was here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. There's two things there. One is an emphasis on mercy. And that's exactly what this priest did. Now the conundrum is, he goes against what the law of God says to do it. And that's part of Jesus' point, is an emphasis on mercy to those that are desperate. And then Jesus also says, now, by the way, why do you think and why did Abathar give David and his men that bread? Why did he do that? Because he was David. Because he was David. And part of the point Jesus is making here is, if one of lesser authority like David can do this and receive help from a priest, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Essentially, if if this exclusion and this mercy was showed to David, what do you think the Lord can do with the Sabbath? It's just an allusion to his authority. But we see here in this text the merciful provision of God, even in a case of doing something that was not technically lawful. God was taking care of David, which brings us to our next point. Not only do we remember God's provision, we should also remember God's good providence. You should also remember God's good providence. Like I said, the Bible is very honest with pointing out the errors and sins of the faithful men and women of God. But here's the reality, and here's a comfort for all of us sinners. Our stumbling cannot and will not thwart the plan of God. Listen to me carefully. God has purposes and plans that are invincible. Like, for instance, the day of the Lord's return, the day of judgment is a day fixed. Acts 17. My stumbling, my sins cannot and will not thwart God's purposes and God's plans. I mean, if you, have you not seen this in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob's life? I mean, you think about Abraham. 
You look at the life of Abraham. Abraham's life is like a roller coaster of faithfulness and unfaithfulness. And faithfulness and unfaithfulness. And what is happening when David is, or when Abraham is being unfaithful? God's purposes are not being thwarted by the man's sin. God's purposes for David has, have been made clear. His purposes for David are he will be king. And despite his deception, his lies in chapter 21, he will still be king and still be provided for. Our stumbling does not thwart God's plans. Think about Jacob the deceiver. What a debauched life. If you're reading the account of Jacob and being like, wow, Jacob is really a great guy. We should try to be like him. You're missing the point. The fact of even though Jacob is a stumbling fool, God will see his covenant through. God will do as he's promised. And even though Jacob is a deceiver, he will repent and he will learn by God's grace and he will not thwart the plans of God. In fact, after all of his deceptions, listen to what Jacob says in Genesis 32. This is Genesis 32, 10. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan and now I've become two camps. Why did he cross the Jordan in the first place? Because he's a deceiver and he had to run from his life because he tricked his brother and stole the birthright. And he left with just his staff, but what does he come back with? camps, livestock. The plans of God will not be thwarted. Now, this is why it's important when we're reading a text of desperation like this for you to remember the good providence of God. And let me again point out verse 7 of chapter 21, 1 Samuel 21, 7. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. This is a dark and foreboding foreshadowing. But notice what the text says. Why is Doeg there? Detained by the Lord. He's detained by the Lord. And if you, if you pay attention in 1 Samuel, you'll see that as he always does, God is orchestrating all these events. God sent an evil spirit to Saul. God is bringing about and orchestrating these events to get David to the throne. And here is a, here is a piece of terribly dark and depraved foreshadowing because you know what Doeg is going to do. And incidentally, David admits he probably does too. And David is going to be incredibly hurt by the, the sinful decision he makes here. Because he is going to view himself as responsible for the deaths of the priests of the Lord. But you know what? God is so good and amazing. God will use the most evil and depraved actions of men like that action of Doeg to bring about good. Do you know what's born from this example and from this event? Psalm 52. Psalm 52 comes from this experience. And when we get into 1 Samuel 22, we're going to read it and study it in depth. You would not have Psalm 52 if you didn't have Doeg the Edomite in his murderous ways. And you know what? Psalm 52 has been used by God to help generations of people. So David's hurt will help thousands of people. His experience here, his desperate experience and his lying will, and the, the, the murders of Doeg the Edomite, which are terribly evil, 
will lead to the enlightening of future generations. Because that's why you have Psalm 52 in your Bible. You need to remember the good providence of God. I mean, just think about Psalm 23, right? You've probably got it memorized. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. How does the psalm end? Even though there's a valley of the shadow of death, surely goodness and mercy will follow me. That's the providence of God. That's the providence of God. These two experiences of God in my life, goodness and mercy, what do they do? They follow after me. They're behind me, they're chasing me, and they're after me all the days of my life. You've got to remember the good providence of God, especially when you read about dark realities like Doeg the Edomite. Finally, just bridging, bridging off our first illustration. You need to focus on the panorama, not the snapshot. That's one of the things 1 Samuel 21 to 26 is teaching us. If you focus just on what's going on here, David is a liar, Doeg is a traitor, and what in the heck is going to happen? This is not the end of the story or all of the story. The snapshot here is rough, but the panorama is going to be amazing, and the panorama gives you perspective on life. Let me give you one last example. Actually, it's not the last one. I've got two more examples. But if you go to Psalm 119, here's a place you can go when you face distress or desperation. Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is famously known as the psalm about the word of God, and that's true. Uh, every one of the verses, with the exception of five, mention the word of God. It's a God-centered faith, or I'm sorry, it's a word-centered faith. It's also God-centered. It's a word-centered psalm. It's about the Word of God and how we follow after God. That's what true spirituality is. It's learned through His Word. But woven through Psalm 119 is also the story and the account of a suffering, faithful man of God. And look at how he describes it. Look, look at how he describes his sufferings. Psalm 119, look at verse 22 and 23. Take away from me scorn and contempt... For I keep your testimonies. Even though princes set plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Now, now if you'll recall, I've, I've tried to tell you many times, meditating on the word of God is the key to life. When, when princes are plotting against you, what do you do? Meditate on the word of God. Look at verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. Look at verse 51. One nineteen fifty-one. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. A lot of people think David wrote Psalm 119. Spurgeon believed David wrote Psalm 119 because the language of suffering is so similar to his other psalms. Look at verse 61. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. This is the situation the psalmist finds himself in. Cords of the wicked ensnare me. It's like David's experience in 1 Samuel 21 to 26. Look at verse 67, and here we start to get a bit of perspective on this panorama of suffering. Verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. David is going to, we've got five chapters of David's affliction. And God is going to train him in faithfulness in the wilderness, in the ruins, in Philistia, in the cave. 
Many of his psalms are born in this experience of desperation and distress and pain and turmoil. Look at verse 71 of Psalm 119. It is good for me that I was afflicted. Oh, that's strange. How or why that I might learn your statutes? So Martin Luther, the great Bible teacher, preacher, and reformer, Martin Luther's view of the Christian life and spirituality boiled down to essentially three things. That Luther argued that there are three ways Christians grow in the faith. Meditation, prayer, and pain. Pain. That that is God's teacher. But again, you've got to focus on this panorama and not just the snapshot. In, Psalm, in 1 Samuel 21, David is a fugitive, but he will be king. He is desperate, but he is going to be delivered by God in amazing fashion. He's, to, he, he's going to soon be surrounded by his mighty men. Now he has few with him. He's going to soon be surrounded by the mighty men. Today he's hurt, but through this pain and turmoil, he's going to help the hurting. And finally, here is the last example. When we face desperation, and we will, we need to turn to the best provision of God and the kindest provision of God, and that is the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, which all of this in David's life is leading up to. You understand, this is, all, this is a setup for the coming of the great king. All that God is doing in David's life, training him, preparing him, bringing him to the kingship, is so that David's descendant one day would be a perfect king. It's one of the, the beauties of David. He is not a perfect king. But there's coming one day from him one who will be perfect, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's easy to you read this about David, and you see how he's lied to the priests, and we've all committed sins, haven't we? And James 2.10 says, one of you Awana kids might have to help me out with it, he who keeps the whole law but stumbles in one point has become accountable of all of it. It's all of us. We can look at David the liar. We look at all our own specific sins. But this is why God is setting up Jesus, the perfect king, to come. Die on the cross for our sins and be raised from the dead. So friends, when we're desperate, we turn to him for help. We look to him for help. And our, our sins ultimately make us more desperate than anything. Maybe the sin of lack of faith in turmoil or desperation. But we have one who has conquered, who has died for our sins to bring us to God. And he will bring us to God. All the Father gives me will come to me and I will raise them up on the last day. It's definite. It's certain. He will raise us up on the last day. And that's an unchanging truth that you should love and rejoice in whenever you face desperation. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word and its clarity and power. For the example of David and God, how you're so patient with sinners and how you have plans, God, to use us despite our sins and in spite of our sins, Lord. That our sinfulness does not thwart your good purposes and plans. But God, you work around and through us. And you even work through the most evil of men to bring about your good plans. 
We rejoice and praise your name for that, God. We recognize that you will triumph and that Christ will rule and that all will be prayer and praise and that we are awaiting a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. And it's because the lamb of the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. We praise you for that, God. So help us to sing now to your glory. Help us, God, to turn to you now and in times of desperation. Help us to prepare our souls now to face desperation. And then when we do, we will be faithful and turn to Christ who is our help. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. We do call you to turn to Christ in faith. You will face desperation in life and you will, you will need an anchor for your soul and a help. And there's none better than the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth that come what may. Verily, verily, I say to you, he who believes in me has eternal life. It's a promise that you can have and claim and love no matter what you experience in this life or what circumstance comes your way. You know, Jesus has died to cleanse you of your sins. He's raised from the dead. And one day you'll be raised with him if, you'll tr if you trust him. If you're depending on Jesus, if you've repented of your sins and believe the good news of the gospel. So we call you to do that. If you have questions about that, questions about being a Christian, being saved, talk to me afterwards. I'd love to talk to you about that as we sing together.